0: For our lesson of the day, we are back in the epistle of James. I will read in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Here again, the word of God. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you praise and thanks for your word. And we ask that you would speak to us now, that you might speak with power, that we would not only hear your word, but be transformed more and more into doers of the Word, that our very lives might become living epistles from you to the world, that people might look at us and see what the biblical life, the godly life, looks like. Father, we pray that you would do this work in us, that we might do the work you have given us to do. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. After World War I, the Paris Peace Conference was held in 1919. It's where the Versailles Treaty uh, was eventually signed. And uh, at the Paris Peace Conference, the United States was represented by President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Wilson was, uh, you could say, something of a liberal Christian, and I would say that his uh, liberalism was on display at the conference. He was actually a Presbyterian, the son of a Presbyterian minister. But like a lot of Presbyterians in the early part of the 20th century, he was a sort of modernist Christian. There can't really be such a thing truly, but that's kind of how he was, a sort of progressive Christian trying to synthesize the Bible with uh, a sort of modernist worldview. And that's interesting, a, a biography of Wilson records how the president... Uh, made certain comments at the negotiating table in Paris that stunned the other statesmen present. Uh, They knew that Wilson was a Presbyterian, the son of a Presbyterian minister. Uh, At the table, Wilson said this. He said, organized religion has yet to devise practical solutions to the problems of the world. He said, Christ articulated an ideal But he left no instruction in how to attain it. And then Wilson went on to say, This is why I am proposing a practical scheme to carry out Christ's aims. So Woodrow Wilson uh, says, Look, Jesus didn't tell us everything we need to get us there, to get us to the goal. So I will supply it. I will give you what you need to know. Now, Of course, Wilson's practical scheme didn't work out all that well, because within another generation, yet another world war was fought. Uh, But what's interesting is what went on to happen at that negotiating table after Wilson made his comments. France's representative at the table was a well-known non-Christian radical, uh, George Clemenceau, And when Wilson said that Christ offered no practical instruction to attain his ideal for humanity... Uh, Clemenzo opened his eyes wide to kind of see what the other uh, Christians at the table would do. Would any of them defend Christ against uh, what Wilson had said? Would they actually speak up for Christ and say, no, Christ does have the answers. He does tell us how to get there, how to realize this ideal. Or would they go along with Wilson in viewing Christ's teaching as futile in solving the pressing practical problems of, of the day. Clemenceau was very curious. What will these Christians do? No one said anything. No one defended Christ or his teaching. No one said Christ has the answers. Now let me ask you a question. If you had been at that negotiating table when Wilson made those remarks, what would you have said? Would you have said, "Hey, wait a second. Christ not only gave us an ideal vision of what human society should look like, But in his word, he also gives us a way to get there. He gives us practical instructions that if followed can transform human relationships and human culture. That could bring about a harvest of righteousness and peace. We all want to see the world change. We all want the world to change. Does Jesus teach us how to change the world? How to bring about that harvest of righteousness and peace? Had James, the author of this letter, been sitting at that table, I know what he would have said. He would have insisted that Jesus does indeed give us practical wisdom. Practical wisdom that enables us to address every problem we face. Wisdom that can transform our lives, and that can transform the culture, that can transform the whole world. And because, I know that, because that's really exactly what James is doing in this letter. What is James doing in this letter? He is giving practical solutions to human problems. Solutions that flow out of Christ's death and resurrection that can't be found anywhere else other than the gospel. And practical solutions to the world's problems that flow out of Christ's teaching because wisdom, like the wisdom of Christ, can't be found anywhere else. In fact, I would say what we have in James 1:19 and 20 is a kind of summary of James' practical wisdom. Really, the wisdom he gives here gets unpacked in the rest of the letter. A lot of the rest of James is just unpacking what's there in verses 19 and 20. We touched on these verses last week, but uh, I want to go into a little more detail in them here today and show you how James addresses Not only the problems of his original audience, which were very intense problems in their own right, but also how he would have us address the problems in our world today. If we want to attain Christ's ideal vision for human life, if we uh, want to attain what we might call the righteousness of God or the kingdom of God, if we want to attain these things, these verses, in a sense, give us a roadmap. So what does James say here? He says we must be swift to hear, slow to to speak, and slow to anger because man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. Well, let's let's think about this. In a sense, it seems very mundane, these pieces of counsel that James gives us, but they're actually quite deep if we dig into them. James says let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Let's start with that. Those two commands obviously go together, hearing, hearing. And speaking, What do we do with this? What is James telling us here? Well, it might seem at first glance that James is just sort of offering the same kind of generic advice about listening and speaking that you can find in just about every culture throughout the history of the world. Cultures across history have got proverbs of sorts that speak to this kind of thing. We've got sayings like this in our own culture. We might say things like, listen to understand and not reply. Okay, listen to make sure you really understand the speaker and don't just be thinking about how you're going to respond as they're speaking. Or we have things like this. We say, actions speak louder than words, or talk is cheap. Uh, The ancient Greek uh, moralist Plutarch said, we are often sorry for having spoken, but never sorry for having remained silent. How true is that? How often do we say things we wish we had not? That's all good counsel. All too often, we are quick to speak and slow to hear. We overuse our tongues and we underuse our ears. In fact, that's even another proverb we've got, right? You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and so use them accordingly. Listen more than you speak. Uh, We could go further and even say this. If you want to have something useful to say, first you need to do some listening. There's nothing worse than somebody talking when they have no idea what they're talking about. You've got to listen before you speak. And so you've got to be able to bridle your tongue. James actually says that in verse 26. It's like he just keeps throwing in things about the tongue. It's there in verse 26. And, of course, he's going to go on in chapter 3 and give an extended discourse, an extended piece of teaching on controlling the tongue in chapter 3, reminding us of the power of our words and even the danger of our words. And so, you know, we say, again, it's one of those common proverbs uh, in the culture, think before you speak. We Christians might even go one step further and say pray before you speak. That's all good advice. That's all very good counsel to live by. But I don't think it's exactly what James has in mind. It's not just that James wants us to listen to each other, as important as that is. He wants us to listen to God. If he talks here about listening, then we should ask, well, what word is being described in this context? Is there a word being described in this context? And the answer is yes. In this context where James says you should be quick to listen, James keeps bringing up God's word again and again and again. It's as if James wants to say, don't get so busy talking that you don't listen to God, that you don't have time to listen to God. James shows us again and again the ultimate importance of God's Word. If you're going to be quick to hear, who should you listen to? Who you listen to matters. Listen to God. So, verse 18 of chapter 1, James says, The Father brought us forth by His Word of truth. There's the Word. Verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted Word. There it is again. Verse 22, be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Again, the Word is in view. Verse 25, he says, we're to look to the perfect law of liberty. What is that law other than God's Word? So there it is again and again and again. James says, listen, and then he tells you what word to listen to. It's the Word of God. James makes it clear. We must listen to God speaking. We have to be humble before God's Word. We have to be receptive before God's Word. Scripture is to your soul what food is to your body. We eat food for nourishment, to nourish our bodies. We eat God's Word, as it were, to nourish our souls. And when we eat God's Word, we are to assimilate it into our lives so it gets assimilated into acts of obedience. Just as we can say physically you are what you eat, we can say spiritually you are what you eat. The Word you eat is what you become. It shapes the way you live. Jesus himself said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we've got to hear God's word. But James makes it clear, there's a certain kind of hearing that is futile, that is fruitless, that doesn't lead anywhere, that only really leads to self-deception. And then there's the proper and right kind of hearing. What kind of hearing does James want us to do? It's not enough to just hear God's Word. That hearing has to get translated into action. We have to hear so we can do. It is hearing for the sake of action. The Word that we hear, we then have to perform it. We have to enact it. To be swift to hear, as James says, means you are eager to hear God's Word. And you are ready and willing to put it into practice. For James, hearing is incomplete until it gives rise to doing. Hearing God's word, even knowing God's word, is not enough. It must lead to obedient action. I think we see this again and again in Scripture. Certainly it's all over the Old Testament. Uh, I think in the Old Testament Scriptures you find that for the Hebrew mindset, hearing and doing are inseparable. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, the famous Shema, the word Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. As Moses announces this, as he says to Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He then fully expects their hearing to result in doing As they hear the word, it's going to result in doing what he commands. And of course, in that context, what does he command? He commands loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength, and raising their children to do the same. When you hear the word of God, that's how you put it into practice. There are other places in scripture that show us the same thing that mere hearing is not enough. Think of Romans 2.13 in this context, where Paul, saying really the same thing as James, Paul says, it is not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified at the last day. You want to be counted righteous by God at the last day? You must be a doer of the word. It's not enough to say, God, I heard the word. God, I read the word. God, I listened to a lot of sermons. Now you have to put it into practice. And of course, here we could also say James is echoing Jesus Uh, There's so many places in the Sermon on the Mount that James is echoing here, but the one that I read for us this morning, Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. It's doing the will of the Father. That's what counts. Not knowing these things, but doing these things. We must do what we hear. In other words, you have to submit your life to this book. Because this book comes from God. It is God's own speech, God's word to us. It carries God's authority. And so you have to submit your life to this book. You are not the boss of you. The Bible is the boss of you. That's what this means. If we listen to the Bible without doing, we're still really our own bosses. And James says we're actually self-deceived. James is saying, look, your life should be an embodiment of the Bible, a kind of living Bible, a flesh-and-blood Bible, so people can read what God has to say by looking at your life. Your, Your life should become an embodiment of the words you have heard from God. And so I want you to ask yourself a question. What is your doing saying? What is your doing saying? Your actions have a sort of language all their own. What are they saying? Are your actions saying to the world, I am a child of God. I am a disciple of Jesus. I live according to His Word. Are your actions saying, I am a doer of God's Word. Are you putting flesh and blood on God's Word in your life? It really doesn't matter how much you talk about the Bible. It matters how much of the Bible you do. You might open your Bible all the time. And that's wonderful. You should be reading your Bible, studying your Bible. But you can open your Bible all the time. It does not matter if you live like it's a closed book to you. If you're in the Word, hearing the Word, it should show in how you live your life. Hear and do. That's James' mantra. Push the Word of God out into every area of your life, into the very corners of your life. Obey the Word and apply the Word in every area of your life. Be like the disciples who heard the voice of Jesus and then followed him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow. Not just hearing, but the following. You know, it's interesting. Christians have focused so much, especially in the 20th century and and into uh, the 21st century. Christians have focused so much on what the Bible is, what kind of book it is. That the Bible, you know, is, is it inspired? Is it? We put so much emphasis on what we believe about the Bible. And certainly that is important. But it is just as important to ask, what do we do with the Bible? Not just what do we believe about the Bible, but what do we do with the Bible? Do we actually put it into practice? Now there are a couple of interesting things here that I think reinforce James' point. In verse 21, James says, lay aside all filthiness. Uh, I actually read in a commentary uh, this week uh, that pointed out that the word for filthiness there is related to a technical term, a medical term for earwax. So right after saying we've got to be hearers of the word so we can put it into practice, James says, remove this filthiness from your life, and it's a word for earwax, anything that would stop up your ears and keep you from hearing what God has to say. That filth or dirt in your life that stops up your ears, that blocks your hearing. James is saying, clean your ears out so you can really hear the Word as you should. Our ears have got to be open to God. I think we got a wonderful picture of this ear opening. Uh, in the Old Testament law, in Exodus chapter 21, if a slave wanted to bind himself to his master permanently, when the sixth year, seventh year came along, the, the slave could go free if he wanted, but if a slave said, no, I love my master and I want to live with him in his house, part of his household forever, in a sense, the the, the slave could have his ear circumcised and uh, become what you might call a homeborn slave, a, a slave that's going to be a permanent uh member of the household and so what would happen again you can read about this in exodus 21 uh, the master would bring him to the doorpost and the master would pierce his ear with an owl piercing his ear with an owl as if to symbolically open up his ear permanently as if the slave is saying my ears are going to be open always to hear my master's voice But, of course, not just to hear the master's voice, but to do what the master says. Then we've also got a picture of this in the ordination of the priests, who would have blood dabbed on their extremities, but that would include their ear, as if to cleanse the ear, as if to open the ear, so the priest can hear and do God's word. You know, in our circles, in Reformed circles, it is easy to be a hearer of the word. In our circles, I dare say, we have a pretty deep understanding of God's Word. We like to study God's Word. We like preaching and reading. A lot of Reformed people, you know, it's kind of like when you come to church, you feel like it's a book of the month club or something, or book of the week club even, because uh, people generally like to, to read and study. And if that's not your thing, I mean, that's fine too. You need to, to know God's Word, certainly, but not, not everybody's going to have the same level of interest in pursuing these things. I understand that. But it's common in our circles. But, you know, it's interesting and I've seen this happen, you can become a real connoisseur of the best teaching, the best sermons, the best books. And you can think, oh, I know so much about the Bible now. I know so much that other people don't know. I must have arrived. And we can become sort of theological critics and inquisitors of others. We think we're mature because we know so much more. But what James would say is, it really does not matter how much you know. That's not the test. It's how much you practice. The more you know, the more you ought to put into practice. But how much you know is not really the main thing. It's how much you do. Unless we do what we know, we are self-deceived. It would be better to listen to the the most simple sermon on the basics of the Christian faith or the Christian life that you put into practice. That would be better than hearing an incredibly deep and profound sermon that does not produce any real-life fruit. James is saying here, the Word must bear fruit in our lives. Something else here to notice. The analogy James uses in verses 23 to 25. A man who hears the Word and does not do the Word is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror in the morning and then forgets what he looks like. Now this is kind of an odd analogy, at least at first it seems kind of odd, but actually it makes perfect sense and fits really well with what James is saying here. James actually says the man looks at his natural face, is how my translation has it. He looks at his natural face in the mirror. The word is actually Genesis. He looks at his Genesis face. It probably means his face in the morning, You know, his beginning face, his face at the beginning of the day. James says this is like a man who rolls out of bed and goes over to look at his Face in the mirror, his natural face, his Genesis face, his morning face. You know, this is his face in the morning. So think about this. What if you looked at your face in the morning in a mirror and then you did nothing about what you saw there? If you didn't do anything to fix your appearance, to sort of tidy yourself up, you know, say you've got dirt on your face and, you know, your hair is kind of a mess, you've got bedhead, all that. You know, you look at your face in the mirror, you see the dirt, you see your hair is all out of place. And then you oh, alright. And then you just go on. And you forget about what you saw there and you don't do anything to improve your appearance. We'd say, why would you bother to look in the mirror? It didn't do you any good. You did not transform how you look. You didn't prepare yourself for the day. You don't look any different. Okay? That's what it's like to hear the Word without doing it. When you see your face in the mirror, your morning face in the mirror, you wash the dirt off your face, you comb your hair. Okay, If you don't do those things, if you forget how you look... That's foolish. And that's what James is saying. But the law does something else for us as well here. James calls it the perfect law of liberty. Uh, He's going to use the same phrase. He uses that phrase uh, a couple different times. It's here, shows up again. Verse 8, he calls it the royal or kingly law. What is this perfect law of liberty? What an odd way to speak of the law. Well, actually, I think this is what Paul in Galatians 6 and in 1 Corinthians 9 calls the law of Christ. The perfect law of liberty, this royal law or kingly law, is the law of Christ. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law of Moses, you could say, transformed through Christ's death and resurrection. The law is no longer in the hands of Moses. The law is in Christ's hand. It's the law transformed for the new covenant situation. This is why it's the law of perfect liberty. We've already seen again and again when James uses that word perfect, it means mature. It's a law for the mature people of God, a law that is suited to our maturity. In fact, I think this is another way of thinking about the whole analogy here. If James says the man with the Genesis face looks in his mirror, you know, the Genesis face, the beginning face, you could even say that's his immature face. It's like it's his baby face. And James is saying God has given us this law that brings us from our infancy, as it were, our childhood, into maturity. A law that can make us perfect if we'll live according to it. A law that will bring us to perfection. In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul uses a similar kind of analogy. He talks about how the law of Moses governed God's people in their childhood. Israel, before Jesus came, was the church in her infancy, in her youth. But now that Christ has come, we've graduated into maturity. And so now we are governed by the law of Christ. Christ's law governs us in our maturity, in our adulthood. The law of Christ, you could say, gives us a portrait of human maturity. It shows us the goal or the end of human life. This is what perfected human life looks like. This is the law we are to look into, we are to gaze into intently. It's the law we are to hear and the law we are to do. In keeping this law, there is freedom and maturity. In fact, I think that's another interesting thing here, that he links law with freedom, law with liberty, the perfect law of liberty. We think of law and liberty as opposites, right? Liberty means no law. I get to do what I want. Law means bondage. But no, that's not right. Law and liberty are not opposites in the way that we often think. Living according to God's law, God's word, is true freedom. Yes, the law does put up boundaries, you could say, but they are for our good and they fit who we are and how we are designed to live. When God says to us, thou shalt live this way, it'd be like telling a fish, thou shalt live in the water. Well, of course the fish has got to live in the water. If anything else would be death for the fish. And so it is for us and this law of God to not live according to this law is death. It's actually bondage. Anybody who's played a sport or learned a musical instrument, you know that if you really want to play the sport with freedom or play the instrument with freedom, you have to submit yourself to the laws of the game or the laws of the instrument. And so it is with human life. The only way to live freely is to live according to our desire, to live according to this law. To do otherwise is death, it's bondage. The law puts up fences, but they are for our protection. The law puts up fences, but it's like having a fence around a playground. You put a fence around a playground, what can the kids do on the playground? They can enjoy it to the full. God has put up these fences, these borders around the playground so we can enjoy all the good things He wants us to enjoy. Without those fences, you really can't enjoy God's gifts in the same way, in the way you should. But James goes on. He gives us another piece of wisdom. He says, Be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now again, remember the context here. I've talked about this again and again as we've gone through James. So if you've heard this, bear with me. If you haven't, this will help set the stage. James is writing to Jewish Christians very early on in the history of the church. Uh, And they've got a real reason to be angry, actually, because they've been persecuted. They have been driven from their homes in Jerusalem. They are what James calls in the opening verse the diaspora. The scattered ones. These are The book of Acts talks about the diaspora, the scattering of Christians after Stephen was put to death. These are Christians who are on the run. They're, they're seeking to escape persecution. Remember Saul, before his conversion, helped to get Stephen stoned? Stephen's been put to death. And Acts 8 tells us that Saul went house to house, ravaging Christians, dragging them off to prison, inciting violence against them. Imagine getting a knock on your door. Are you a Christian? And if you say, yes, you're coming with me, and they haul you off to prison, that's the kind of thing that was happening. These Christians were being persecuted, and so these Christians were tempted to be angry, to be angry with their persecutors. They are thinking about revenge, about meeting violence with violence, returning violence with violence. If their countrymen, their fellow Jews, are attacking them in anger, they are tempted to counterattack. You know, if you've been pushed, why not push back? That's the way to protect yourself, right? This is the context James is addressing. He's writing to Christians who have faced and are facing violent persecution and who are being threatened with even more losses. James has told them at the the very beginning of the letter to count their trials joy. Why? Because they really are experiencing trials, horrible trials. He has spoken to them about their poverty because many of them have lost jobs and have become impoverished. In this very context, at the end of chapter 1, he tells them to care for orphans and widows in their trouble. Why? Likely because the persecution has killed a lot of heads of household. A lot of husbands and fathers have been dragged off to prison or maybe put to death. And so there are orphans and widows in the church's community who need to be cared for. Chapter 4, James describes their quarrels and fights that are leading to murder. That's not just a metaphor. It's real murder. Blood is being shed. James describes their bitter envy, their selfishness, their pride, all these things that are creating division and threatening more violence. James 3, James uh, when he talks about the tongue, the real context there is he's speaking to teachers. He's telling teachers to be careful how they use their tongues because, as he says, the tongue can kindle a great forest fire. James does not want the teachers in the church to use their words to lead others to violent acts. He doesn't want a bunch of overheated rhetoric inflaming passions in the church, driving people to, to violence. In short, James... Does not want Christians returning violence with violence, murder with murder, wrath with wrath. That is not the way of Jesus. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples should rejoice when they are persecuted. He didn't say retaliate when they're persecuted, he said rejoice. James does not want these beleaguered Christians to become like the Zealots. You know, the, 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 the Zealots were those Jews who believed they could take up arms and bring in the kingdom by force. He does not want them to take the zealot option. Now, quick clarification here. Uh, To be sure, the Bible's not a pacifist book. Uh, There is such a thing as just violence. There is such a thing as just war. There is such a thing as righteous self-defense. But what these Christians are contemplating, these Christians James is writing to, that's that's not it. That's That's not what they're doing here. Not in this situation. They're just getting angry and wanting revenge. And even there, I need to make a qualification. James is not saying all anger is sinful. It is possible to have righteous anger. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we read this morning, he says, be angry and do not sin in your anger. We know Jesus got angry. God gets angry. We read about God's anger this morning too in Nahum. You could even say there are places in this very letter where James sounds kind of angry. Read the letter and see for yourself. James sometimes sounds like he's angry when he's writing. Sometimes anger is the right response. And when it is, there are constructive ways to channel our anger. But what James has in view here is sinful anger. Anger that seeks vengeance. Anger that retaliates. Anger that attacks. Anger that seeks vengeance. James does not want them meeting wrath with wrath. He does not want Christians turning into hotheads or Christians resorting to violence as if that could bring in the kingdom of God. James says this anger does not produce or achieve God's righteousness. And that may really be the key to the whole thing. What does this phrase, the righteousness of God, mean? When James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, what does he mean by the righteousness of God? I think that's really the key. It's not just talking about the attribute of God's righteousness. That can't be produced by anything, obviously. God's already righteous in himself. He's talking about the manifestation of God's salvation. He's talking about God putting things right. The righteousness of God is God acting to put things right in the world. It's God fulfilling His promises. It's God keeping His covenant. It's God bringing in His kingdom. It's God establishing His justice and peace in the world. You know, think of passages like uh, Psalm 71 2, where uh, the, the psalmist cries out, Lord, deliver me in your righteousness. That's the righteousness of God. God reaching down to set the situation right, to bring justice and peace, to deliver his people. Or Psalm 31.1, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. That's the righteousness of God in view. This mighty deliverance in which God keeps his promises and brings justice and peace into the world. We might even think here of Matthew 6.33, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his Righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. When the kingdom of God is manifest, we see the righteousness of God. But James says here, our anger does not work God's righteousness. Our anger cannot bring about God's justice. Our anger will not bring in God's kingdom. Our anger will not not bring in that harvest of righteousness James talks about later in the letter. Our anger will not bring in the kingdom of peace. Our anger will not make the world look the way God wants it to look. Our anger will not attain Jesus' ideal for humanity. Now apply this to our situation today. Does Jesus through James give us practical solutions to the problems we face? Woodrow Wilson said no, I say yes. What characterizes our culture more than anything right now? You know, what I would say characterizes our culture more than anything right now is anger. We live in a culture of perpetual outrage. You know, was that bumper sticker, you, you still see it around some, you know, the bumper sticker that says, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Okay, well, that's been taken to the max in our culture today. There's no question, there are a lot of people out there in America today who think that their anger can fix what's wrong with the world. Their anger can fix what's wrong. I I saw an article. I, I actually had a bunch of examples of this, and I realized I don't need to give you examples of this. You see it every single day in the news, social media. It's all around us. But there was one article I saw not too long ago that summed this up. It said, survey reveals deep, boiling anger in America. Americans are angry. People are angry at the president, they're angry at Congress, they're angry at the Supreme Court, they're angry at Republicans, they're angry at Democrats, they're angry at the media, and of course the media is manufacturing all kinds of outrage in the people. People are angry about everything. You know, Just think about this, what happens when a Christian or a conservative speaker goes to speak at a rather liberal university? I've seen where some speakers have had to spend six hundred thousand dollars in security to protect themselves from the threat of mob violence on a university campus, places that are supposed to be centers of reason and 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 and, and the free exchange of ideas. Six hundred thousand dollars, so the mob won't attack them. And sometimes the speeches have even been canceled because the, the the mob did get out of control. Or look at what's happening in Portland, where there is anger. Uh, flowing in the streets. Unchecked anger. This anger is everywhere. Now, I'd be the first to say there are a lot of things worth getting angry over. There are certainly things in our culture that are wrong. But the kind of anger we see in our culture is not going to produce God's righteousness. In fact, the kind of anger we see in our culture only makes things worse. You know, we might think that this anger is mainly over on the left of the political spectrum, And I do think that's where a whole lot of it is concentrated, but I've seen a lot of anger on the right. I've even seen a lot of this kind of anger in the church. We are not immune to it. Anger is not going to fix our culture. Anger is not going to fix our country. Anger is not going to fix the church. Anger is not going to fix your marriage. Anger is not going to fix your kids. I mean, how many parents parent out of anger? They just get angry with their kids, and it accomplishes what? Nothing. It does not help. Anger so often is a destructive rather than constructive force. It opposes God's righteousness rather than producing God's righteousness. We see this again and again in Scripture. Think of when the Jews and the Romans came to arrest Jesus in John 18. What did Peter do? Peter was swift to anger. And he yanked out his sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And what did that act of anger do? Did that act of anger produce the righteousness of God? No. What would produce the righteousness of God? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Not Peter's sword, but Jesus' cross. We should guard ourselves against that kind of anger. Now you need to understand, today, a lot of this anger in the culture is actually directed at Christians. And there are Christians who have begun to suffer because of this anger at us. There are Christians who have lost their businesses or who have lost a great deal of money because they refuse to use their gifts and their business to promote homosexual unions. There are Christians who have suffered being denied promotions they were worthy of in the university of system, in the university system because of their theological views, maybe their views on creation and evolution or or their views on sex and gender and so forth. There are Christians who have been passed over likewise in the business world for the same kinds of reasons. We've been accused of bigotry. We've been called deplorables. I don't know that we have yet had violence break out against Christians, but if we do, if you find yourself on the receiving end of this kind of attack, this kind of anger, your temptation is going to be to get angry in return. And so I want to tell you now, guard yourself against any and all unrighteous anger. The temptation is there to get angry, to push back just as you've been pushed. But James says that's not going to produce the righteousness of God. That's not going to bring in the kingdom. That's not going to advance God's purposes in the world. Don't think your anger can fix anything. James gives us a very practical way to deal with the problems in our world. What does James say? Be swift to listen and slow to speak. Be quick and eager to hear God's word. Receive God's word with open ears in humility, putting it in practice in your life. So you are not just a hearer, but a doer. And be slow to anger. Because your anger does not accomplish God's righteous purposes. Don't give in to the politics of hate. When you are hated, don't hate in return. Love those who hate you. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What's going to manifest the righteousness of God in the world? What's going to bring in his kingdom of love and peace? What's going to change the world? It's hearing and doing the word of God. Being slow to anger. Slow to anger and quick to love, quick to serve. We want to change the world. We want to see the world changed. World-changing ambitions are wonderful, provided you're aiming to change the world, not through your anger, but through doing the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give You thanks and praise for the Word You have implanted in us, the Word that is able to save our souls. Father, would we be not just hearers of Your Word, but doers. Would Your Word bear great fruit in our lives? a harvest of righteousness. And may this in turn change the world and bring transformation. Father, may we live in such a way that we advance Your kingdom purposes, that Your righteousness, Your love, Your wisdom, Your mercy, Your grace, Your peace may be manifest in us and through us. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.